We are delighted to have Elisa Childers with us today. She's a wife, mom, author, podcaster, blogger, speaker, and worship leader. She was a member of the award-winning CCM recording group, Zoe Girl, and she's currently a respected speaker at apologetics and Christian worldview conferences, as well as the host of her popular YouTube channel. Elisa's story was featured in the documentary, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. She's been published at the Gospel Coalition, Crosswalk, The Stream, For Every Mom, Decision Magazine, and The Christian Post. And her blog post that many of us have read, Girl, Wash Your Face, What Rachel Hollis Gets Right and Wrong, received more than one million views. She has an upcoming book that's actually going to be released tomorrow, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. Welcome to the Scripture and Plain Reason Podcast. An engaging podcast where we affirm the authority and the clarity of Scripture. My name is Ryan. And my name is Brian. Well, listeners, we have a treat for you today. We are joined by Elisa Childers, and I know my wife is incredibly jealous. She, I think, probably wanted to take my place for this interview. Mine too. Uh, Elisa, thanks for joining the podcast today. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Elisa, we wanted to start with asking you to just tell us briefly your story uh, that kind of led up to your writing Another Gospel, uh, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. We've sold that book at our book table, and it's been a real help to not only ladies, but men and families in our church. And so I kind of wanted to hear your story. Yeah, well, thank you for that. It's a story I never saw coming. I was in music for a lot of my life. In fact, all my life, I thought that the main thing I would be doing would be music my whole life. And so I spent about seven or eight years as a part of the Christian pop group Zoe Girl in the early to mid-2000s and just really loved Jesus my whole life. I, I honestly can't remember a time in my life before I was aware of his presence, before I was fully convinced that the Bible was the word of God. I just knew this in my bones. And my faith wasn't blind. It wasn't like it was just uncritically accepted. I watched the power of the gospel change people's lives. Um, There was real fruit from it. But there was one area of my sort of faith journey that was a little bit weak and untested, and that was the intellectual side of my faith. So if somebody would have asked me to tell them why I believed the Bible was God's Word growing up, I would not have been able to give a reason other than just the Bible says so or God's revealed this to me or something like that. And so that really wouldn't be tested until I was an adult, married with a new baby. Zoe Girl had come off the road, and so my husband and I Uh, started attending a church in Middle Tennessee, right in the heart of the Bible Belt. This was an evangelical, non-denominational church, and we loved it. We really connected with the pastor and the people. And then about eight months into our time there, the pastor invited me to be a part of a smaller group that would be meeting midweek. And he said, this is like a four-year program. It's for, it was very exclusive. There was only about 12 or 13 of us in this class. And he compared it to seminary. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side, um, really kind of being equal with people who've graduated seminary as far as your knowledge and your ability to articulate things. And that sounded very exciting to me. And so what I wasn't prepared for, though, was that when I got to the first class, the pastor kind of revealed to this small group that he was actually agnostic, that he wasn't sure what he believed about the big questions of God and Jesus and Christianity. 
And of course, that sent up a bunch of red flags, but I just tried to keep an open mind. And over the course of the four months I lasted in the class, just virtually every precious belief that I'd ever held about God and Jesus, the core beliefs were challenged. They were picked apart. They were explained away. And it threw me into a faith crisis where uh, intellectually, really for the first time, I had become persuaded that this whole thing wasn't true, even though my heart knew that it was. So it was kind of like this double-minded uh, thing I was I was walking in. But I cried out to the Lord and I just said, God, if you're real, if if all this is true, I need information. I need to know that there are answers to some of these things that have been brought up in this class. And so God in his faithfulness led me to study all sorts of things from church history to theology to um, science, philosophy, really seeing that all of the evidence in creation points to this thing being true. And so by the end of that journey, that was years of study, I really came to the conclusion that the core, uh, I mean, I changed my position on a few other things, but the core of the gospel that was given to me as a child is true, and it really stands up against scrutiny, and so does the Bible. And so uh, today, I, I love to be able to help other people with those types of questions, because that was just a, my you know journey that I had gone on myself. That's a really great story, Elise. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I know we're going to talk a lot about progressive Christianity here in this conversation, and I'd really love for you to maybe just give our listeners a summary or an overview or a brief definition of what progressive Christianity is. And then maybe how does that compare to what you would think of as historical Christianity? Yeah, well, the tough thing about progressive Christianity, which, by the way, the church where this whole class scenario happened, went on years later to rebrand itself as a progressive Christian community. So that's why my interest in this topic is so high. But it's really tough to define. And the reason it's tough to define is because it just works in a different way than Christianity has historically. So if you go all the way back to the earliest Christians, even within a couple of years of Jesus' death, you have creeds emerging, short sayings that were memorized, uh, kept Christians on the same page. It was a way for Christians to say, hey, we, we believe the same core thing here about what this is. But progressive Christianity doesn't work that way because it's not really that important what you believe about these key topics like Jesus or the Bible or the nature of God or what heaven and hell is all about. It's really more in progressive Christianity about the activism you're doing, the systems of oppression you're trying to tear down, the protests you're marching in, the causes you're advocating for. So it's really not so much about your theological beliefs. But with that said, I think we can define it not so much according to what progressive Christians might believe. Like you might find two progressive Christians that have completely different views on what heaven's going to be like, but they're very united in what they deny about historic Christianity. Now I'm talking about the thought leaders. Of course, there could be somebody out there that's in the pews of a church that calls themselves a progressive Christian that isn't aligned with what I'm about to say. But I'm talking about the thought leaders, the people writing the books, the people leading the movement. And they're pretty united that your sin doesn't separate you from God, that you just need to realize how loved you are and how united with God you already are. So there's really no need to, quote unquote, get saved in progressive Christianity, because you simply just need to realize that you are a, a child of God already. And once you, you know, if you feel separated from God, it's just in your mind, it's self-imposed. There's a nearly universal denial of any approach to the atonement that would include a sacrificial component 
a substitutionary component, uh, viewing Jesus dying in our place as our substitute. This is largely rejected and denied in progressive Christianity. And then I, I think just kind of fast forward to the the final judgment. In progressive Christianity, that's just not really a conversation. It's universalistic in the sense that um, most progressive thought leaders, if they do believe in anything called hell, it would be more the consequences of our actions here on earth or maybe the consequences of the sins we commit on earth. And that's my, what we might call hell. But as far as it being a literal place of punishment that God will send people. This is largely denied in progressive Christianity as well. So it's pluralistic in the sense that uh, many progressive Christians would not be evangelistic as far as trying to convert people to Christianity because there's this idea that, you know, again, their salvation doctrine is more like you just need to realize this. So if the Buddhist or the Hindu, they don't need to convert to Christianity. They just need to realize the divine that's all around them and in them. And so it's um, it's not evangelistic in that sense. Elisa, to follow up on that, would you say it's fair then to categorize historical Christianity as more creedal, confessional, and progressive Christianity more social activism? Is that what I'm hearing you kind of divide those up into categories? Yeah, I think that's fair. Although, you know, I do want to acknowledge that just like evangelicalism or any other movement, progressives have their scholars, they've got their intellectuals, they have their more pop level influencers. So that's going to, you know, there's going to be a bit of a spectrum. And so I certainly don't mean to communicate that every progressive Christian is biblically illiterate or isn't thinking through things. I mean, they have there many Bible scholars today are more of that uh, of the progressive bent who they're de-supernaturalizing the Bible following along the lines of theological liberalism. So yeah, it's certainly, it's not that it as a movement is not intellectual or something like that, but it is a rejection of this idea that there would be these core beliefs that you would have to hold to in order to call yourself a Christian. You don't have to hold to any particular creed. Now, many progressives will say they do affirm the Nicene creeds, although when you look at their theology as it plays out, it doesn't make sense to say that because a lot of their beliefs would deny things in those creeds. But, you know, it's not to say that there aren't progressives out there that affirm certain creeds, but you, there's not like a creed you'd have to affirm to call yourself a progressive Christian. You could affirm a creed or not. It wouldn't really matter. It's really more, like you mentioned, a social gospel. It, and I think that's because of the the things they're tearing away from the foundations of the historic Christian gospel. That's not going to exist in a vacuum. you got to put something in its mm-hmm. place. And so good works, um, act activism, environmental activism, environment uh, activism as it would c- refer to sexuality and LGBTQ issues and the trans ideologies. These would be very high values in progressive Christianity. Helpful. My, my first introduction to you again was through friends. My wife found your YouTube on signs that you're in a progressive Christianity church And I was wondering if you could maybe highlight a few of those again. So maybe one of our listeners is wondering, am I in a progressive Christian church? What would be some of those signs that has infiltrated that church? That's the trajectory of that local church? 
Right. And and the reason I use the word signs in that article is because, like like I said, because it's not creedal, it's not like many churches are going to get up on a Sunday morning. Some do, but most churches are not going to get up on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we are a progressive Christian church. These are ideas that sort of infiltrate very subtly, very slowly, like a drift, you know, and usually from the bottom up. It can go top down too, maybe a new pastor hire or something like that. But largely this is happening on the small group level and then it sort of flowers out out from there. So there are definite signs you would want to be looking for that might not be universal is what I mean. But the first one would be just the way they talk about the Bible. So in progressive churches, very often they'll say things like, I have a high view of scripture, or I believe in the inspiration of scripture. But they're going to emphasize the human aspect of the Bible over the divine aspect. So you'll hear people say things like the Bible is primarily a human book. This is a human book about God rather than what Christians have historically believed that the Bible is a divine book written to humans, right? So that that would be one. Another one would be a real emphasis on feelings. Uh, even in this particular church I was at, when they rebranded themselves, they put up a new creed that they wrote. And in that creed, it said that they really were going to focus on the power of each person's personal conscience. So if you have a personal conscience on a particular issue, the church isn't going to challenge you on that because they believe that God gave you that conscience. And I see language like that all over the place in progressive Christianity. And and they'll, they'll turn it on God, too, saying this is something God has put in you. He's given you a God-given conscience, which can be tricky because, of course, we know the law is written on our hearts, right? The Bible tells us that. But we also have the revealed Word of God, which is that objective and final standard to judge if our hearts have it right or not, right? Because very often we know because of the fall and our inherently sinful nature, sometimes we don't get that stuff right. And so we need something outside of ourselves to judge whether that conscience is aligned with with God or not. And so that's where we have, you know, the Bible as our authority. But in progressive Christianity, largely speaking, you are your own authority. You decide what beliefs you think are good or bad or oppressive or liberating or morally good or morally bad. And you can even judge the Bible based on that standard that's inside of you. Another one would be, uh, you know, I think generally speaking in Christian churches, everybody's open to taking a second look at maybe tertiary issues. Maybe, you know, what do we think about speaking in tongues or women in ministry or, you know, what do we think about the age of the earth or things like this? I think that's that's something that's to be expected. However, in progressive Christianity, they're willing to take a second look at core doctrines like the resurrection and things that Christians have you know, Orthodox Christians, at least, have always said, look, we're not going to touch the resurrection of Jesus. We're not going to touch the deity of Jesus. These are locked in. This is what defines Christianity. You know, we can talk about these less important issues, but in progressive Christianity, they're they're open to reinterpreting and even rejecting those core doctrines as well. There's a redefinition of terms a lot. So like I mentioned earlier, a progressive Christian might say, I believe in the inspiration of scripture, but they don't mean what we've historically meant by the inspiration being God-breathed. The words on the page are God's actual words. Um, In progressive Christianity, divine inspiration, as it would refer to Scripture, really means something more like It's a tool God can use to inspire you. It's a tool God can use to maybe reveal himself to you. But in progressive Christianity, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not in its entirety the authoritative word of God. And so they mean very different things by some of the terms that are used. And then, of course, as we mentioned before, 
You just want to be looking for how the gospel is presented or even if the gospel is presented. In a lot of progressive churches, you never are going to hear anything about the cross or what Jesus accomplished on the cross or any type of reconciliation to God type of language, but it's all going to be how to be a good neighbor, how to be a good member of my community, what can we do to uh, do more social justice activism in our communities and things like that. So the heart of the gospel really shifts from this sin and redemption narrative to, to social justice. So just to follow on to that, Elisa, I want to share something that I heard in one of your videos that I thought was really compelling. And it's a, a syllogism. We love syllogisms here on Scripture and Plain Reason. Yes. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the syllogism you used is God is error-free. God cannot make errors. And the Bible is God's word. And therefore, God's word cannot have any errors in it. And I think that's a great defense of historical Christianity and obviously what we believe. Right. Because, you know, I get asked about that a lot, the doctrine of inerrancy and what people need to realize is that when Christians say we be believe the Bible is without error, it's not like somebody like went through the Bible and went, oh, phew, there's no errors. You know, <laughs> it's a logical thing that is is just it must be true. You know, God cannot err. I don't think anybody would deny that. Right now, the second premise is what people will probably challenge. The Bible is God's word. But if both of those are true and we can defend that second premise, which I think we can, then it logically must follow that the Bible cannot err because it's God's actual word. So, yeah, I think that's that's something for Christians to keep in mind. It's not like we're just, you know, hoping inerrancy is true. It's a it's an actual logical necessity. Yeah, I love that. So you talked about some of the the signs of a progressive Christian church. I think it's a good next step to talk about what are the dangers. So what what deconstructions are you seeing in progressive Christianity and progressive churches today? And what dangers does that ultimately lead to? Right. Well, you know, I've often said this, that if, you know, if a lot of Christians think when they think of progressive Christianity, they just they're thinking, OK, it's just a group of Christians who might be becoming more, you know, embracing of authenticity or grace in their lives, or maybe they're just changing their mind on a couple of social issues, or, you know, maybe they're rethinking their political affiliation or something like that. If that's all it was, I mean, I would be happy to have discussions about those things, but it wouldn't concern me enough to want to write a book about it, right? But what people need to realize is that that's not just what progressive Christianity is. Progressive Christianity is actually tearing down the actual foundations of what defines Christianity and has made it unique in the world for 2000 years, which turns it into another gospel. That's why I named my book Another Gospel, because that's the thesis. I mean, this is a different religion. The nature of God is different. The, the creation is different. Jesus is different. And it's all very subjective. It's all very much based on your own moral intuition and how you're going to define these things. And so the danger with that is that if Christianity is true, as God has revealed it, then it has eternal consequences for everyone. Every single person, according to Christianity, will face the final judgment and be assigned to their eternal destinations, heaven or hell. I mean, this is part of the Christian gospel. And if that's true, then what progressive Christianity is teaching is going to lead people to hell. And that's why I think that the consequences cannot be overstated. I mean, this is this is eternal consequences when it comes to the difference between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity. Elisa, a question on that. Uh, you talked about the tertiary issues that 
doesn't necessarily point towards progressive Christianity. These are conversations that Christians are having about multiple issues and about where they land on those. And some of them uh, are really doubtful issues. But when we talk about those first tier issues, we talk about gospel issues. Is there a sense in which progressive Christianity has some signals or signs when what I'm hearing is not as much a frontal attack on some of these major doctrines like the blood atonement or the bodily resurrection of Christ, but it's more of a, okay, I, I really want to pit Paul against Jesus. I A lot of red-letter Christian kind of uh, verbiage mm-hmm. about let's rethink uh, what he was talking about in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians when he described homosexual behavior, that was something mm-hmm. different. And Paul really had a different view than Jesus never spoke about these kinds of things. And rethinking um, what we would call ethical uh, commands, maybe not as mm-hmm. much uh, doctrinal in terms of the gospel. But is that also a sign of more of a progressive kind of a trajectory? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting because when I wrote my book, I was analyzing it. I was trying to keep it just theological, like just the core doctrines. But then there's these other things you almost can't, you can't avoid interacting with and how they affect the core of the gospel. So while we do see full-on attacks on Christian doctrines, there's an ethic that often shifts first. And the only way to shift that ethic is to change the way you view the Bible or change the way Christians have interpreted the Bible. So, for example, the LGBTQ issue, you know, I said it's hard to define because there's a broad spectrum of beliefs. It's very fluid. It's constantly changing. However, if you wanted to be accepted in the progressive Christian community and you held to a historic biblical sexual ethic, in other words, you went around saying that you think it's a good idea for Christians to wait until they get married to have sex. And we, sh- we should be telling young kids to wait until they get married to have sex for the first time. If you went to a progressive church and that was your view and you were open about it, you would not be accepted in that community. So while it kind of markets itself as being real tolerant and real you know, open-minded on a lot of these things, they would not tolerate, for example, a pastor or a staff member who would believe that marriage is between a man and a woman for one lifetime. You would not be allowed to be to be any sort of a leader in the progressive church if that was your your view. You would you must affirm the cultural ethic when it comes to sexuality. And that doesn't just apply to LGBTQ. A lot of Christians think that they think, "Oh, it's just one little issue." You know, maybe they're they're just changing their mind on LGBTQ. It's not just that. I mean, there's a full-on message in progressive Christianity that if we even tell young kids to wait until they get married, to have sex. We're actually oppressing them. We're, we're going to ensure that they have terrible sex lives, that they're repressed sexually for the rest of their lives, that their lives are not going to turn out the way that, that they've been promised that would turn out. So that is a core. I would say that is a core tenet in progressive Christianity that you would have to affirm. And then, of course, flowering out of that, you have to affirm the trans ideology. Um, You would have to. In fact, uh, the church that I wrote my book about, maybe a few months after they came out as a progressive Christian community, they started offering makeup classes for men transitioning from male to female. They they said, come and we'll teach you how to put on makeup and do your hair. And I mean, this is a church, right? So that's going to sometimes be the first change. But it's always going to be there. There, there. I don't know of any progressive Christian thought leaders who would hold to a, a historic biblical sexual ethic. This has been a great episode. 
We're looking forward next time to talk specifically about the new book that's going to be released tomorrow, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. All right, Elisa, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. My name is Ryan. My name is Brian. And I'm Elisa. Join us next time for more scripture and plain reason. God's word is true and God's word is clear.